I love working in healthcare, mainly because of the impact my work will have on people's lives. The heart of healthcare is the patient. It is not the data and not the doctors. It is you and me, the healthcare consumers. On this show, we will get to know what the patients think and what the patients want from healthcare. I'm your host, Bindu Kalisan, and welcome to The Patient Angle. our first episode in 2022. In our last episode, Why is U.S. Healthcare So Expensive? Part 1, we dove into the history of U.S. Healthcare and learned that the uh, predecessor of the current healthcare insurance system was the Blue Cross plan, and it was intended to be non-profit. Who knew that? According to the CDC, the country spent $3.6 $3.6 trillion in 2018 alone on healthcare, which came up to around $12,000 per person. Now, in this episode, we are going to go deeper. But first, let's see what diseases are we spending most on. According to the CDC, the biggest chunk of these $4 trillion is spent on treating heart diseases and stroke. Heart disease and stroke are therefore the top killer diseases as well. Around 900,000 Americans die each year of heart disease and stroke. That's one third of all the deaths. And the economic toll is $214 billion per year. And additionally, $138 billion are lost as indirect costs, which is um, lost productivity costs. The second most expensive disease and the second leading cause of death is cancer. Each year in the United States, more than 1.7 million people are diagnosed with cancer and almost 600,000 dies from it. The cost of cancer care, we know, has been rising for a while, mainly due to the newer drugs which hit the market. It has continued to rise and is now almost $174 billion. Third cause of death, cause of misery, is diabetes. Around 34 million Americans have diabetes and another 88 million have prediabetes, which means they are at risk of diabetes, the type two diabetes. We all know that diabetes is a metabolic disorder and can cause serious consequences, including heart disease, kidney failure, loss of your digits, thumbs, um, and even blindness. The total estimated cost of treating diagnosed diabetes was $327 billion in medical costs. The fourth one is obesity. This is something that we've become very, very known for. 19% of the American children and 42% of American adults are obese. This puts 
all the obesity puts them at risk for chronic diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, and some cancers. Over a quarter of all Americans between the age of 17 and 24 are actually too heavy to join the military. And obesity costs a lot of money, around $147 billion each year. The fifth disease is arthritis. Arthritis, as we know, is mainly a disease that sets with age, and it affects more than 50 million American adults. That means one in every four American adults are affected by arthritis. It is also the leading cause of work disability in the United States, and it leads to chronic pain. And a cause of chronic pain then results in lasting consequences. So it can have an adverse effect on every part of a person's life. And in uh, 2013, the total cost of treating arthritis was estimated to be around $300 billion. They divided into two, the 140, which is almost about half of it, was mainly for medical care. The remaining 160 or so dollar, billion dollars was for indirect costs. So what are the indirect costs? Indirect costs refers to all those costs which are incurred not as a result of medical care, direct medical care, but mostly costs associated with lost wages, lost productivity, and also some of the costs related uh, from the uh, from needing additional care such as home care, child care, etc. The sixth most expensive disease is Alzheimer's. As many of us already know, it is a type of dementia. It's irreversible and progressive. Alzheimer's affects about six million Americans and is a sixth leading cause of death among all adults and the fifth leading cause for those aged 65 years and older. Scientists did a meta-analysis of the costs required for treating Alzheimer's, and they used studies from 2007 until 2017. So meta-analysis is a type of a research study design where multiple study results are pooled together so that we can have a collective understanding of the evidence together. This results sort of a unified estimate of risk. So this study, this particular scientific study was conducted in three categories related to the stages of Alzheimer's disease, which are mild, moderate, and severe. They reported that the total cost per patient in one year came up to a 20,461. And that was when they considered all the stages of the disease together. But when they started to assess uh, the costs based on the disease stage, then what they got was 14,675 for mild stage, moderate stage was 19,975, and for the severe stage, it was 29,708, 
and that confirms that with increase in severity, there will be increasing cost of care. Epilepsy comes in seventh place. Now, that was a little bit of a surprise to me as well. In America, there are about 3.4 million adults and 470,000 people who are younger than 18 years have active epilepsy. Active epilepsy means that they have been diagnosed by a doctor and also have had a recent seizure. There are also approximately around 150,000 new diagnoses that occur every year. Adults with epilepsy can have different complications, such as they can have poor mental health, reduced um, cognitive abilities, and they also tend to limit their social participation. In 2016, healthcare dollars for epilepsy spent was 8.6 billion in direct costs alone. Direct costs meaning direct medical care costs. A report titled Examining the Economic Impact and Implication of Epilepsy which was published in February 2020 in the American Journal of Managed Care, reported that the direct costs of epilepsy are approximately 28 billion per year. Now think of the earlier number what I mentioned. That was 8.6 billion in 2016. So in 2020, it was reported to be 28 billion. That's a big jump. This jump was explained as either, you know, like a, like a matter of both. It could be some sort of a miscalculation in earlier years. And also it could be that there has been an increase in all-cause all costs due to the uncontrolled epilepsy. The eighth disease, surprisingly tooth decay, comes in at eighth place. The holes in our teeth, yes, the cavities, are the eighth most expensive disease. One in five children between six to 11 years and one in four adults have untreated cavities. Untreated cavities can cause pain and infections and that, that infections can lead to other problems like difficulty with eating, speaking, and even learning. Imagine having to go to school with a toothache. On average, 34 million school hours are lost each year because of some kind of an emergency dental care. And over 45 billion is lost in productivity due to dental disease. I wanna give you a key piece of information the website kff.org. KFF stands for Kaiser Family Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization and they focus on national health issues. I religiously use the site for healthcare news. So when you want to sift the good part of the healthcare news, not that which make, gives you the real good feels, but one that is actually pertinent to us, to our health the real important kind of healthcare news. 
So go to kff.org and find out what, how you need to be in the know regarding healthcare. On December 10th, 2021, KFF reported that we're going to have a new law, a new act, the No Surprises Act or the NSA. And they said it'll take effect in 2022. This act was supposed to establish new federal protections against surprise medical bills. Now, medical bills, we've all had it, but surprise medical bills are something else. How many of us have actually received the surprise medical bills? I certainly have. It's kind of like taxes. We expect returns when we are filing, but instead we are, you know, we are paying large amounts of money to the IRS. These surprise medical bills arise when insured customers or the consumers, health consumers, patients, inadvertently receive care from out-of-network hospitals. So, if you're a patient, you don't intentionally go and seek healthcare from an out-of-network hospital or a doctor. But something else happens there. My family chose a plan based on a hospital which was near us. And when we went to see the doctor there at that hospital, we were told, oh, no, you're out of network for us. We can't, we can't really take you in there. And we're like, okay, this hospital is supposed to be in our network. Then say, oh, just because the hospital is supposed to be in our network, that doesn't mean the doctors who work there will also be in that network. No, not the case. But, you know, at least we did not go, you know, to take the services and then come back and look at a gigantic bill. That did not happen to us. Research studies also say that these surprise billings kind of happen more often than it is actually necessary in about 20% of emergency room visits. That's one out of five emergency visits will incur some amount of surprise billing. It doesn't stop there. Nine to, nine, nine to 16% of in-network hospitalizations, so which means you're going into this hospital for a surgery and you know the doctor, you're sure that doctor is in your network, you, you know, we are worried, we are waiting for the surgery, we're scantily clad in all those crazy things that they have us wear, and we're waiting for the surgery. But when we come out of that surgery, we can look at a bill and say, oops, there there you go, there are some um, non-network hospital, out-of-network providers here. What happens there, and these are sometimes anesthesiologists, the patient does not get to choose the anesthesiologist during the surgery. Who chooses the anesthesiologist? The doctor, the surgeon chooses the anesthesiologist. But the patient does not know that they have to go to the anesthesiologist separately and find out, hey, you know, I want to know whether you're in network or out of my network. We don't do that. We don't even meet our anesthesiologist before our surgery. Uh, There's one person who comes and chats with you, asking you questions right before the surgery. That person is your anesthesiologist. 
at that point in time when you're worried sick and you're a little bit uh, confused about different things going on around you you don't remember like to check in with the anesthesiologist number one hey are you my anesthesiologist we're not going to ask that so this surprise medical bills as we all agree is a big damn deal for most of us because each medical provider will bill uh, bill for services in different ways so we have no idea what what we are going to be slapped with by the end of our medical uh, health care we are just supposed to be like okay whatever you want i will i will try and meet it later that is one part of the surprise billing so there's a, there's another more devious part of the surprise uh, surprise billing that's something what what's called the balance billing this is also a type of surprise bill but that what we can get from an out of network provider so here we go you know you have to let's say you need a urologist you go to you look around there are no in network neurologists in your place you have to go to an out of network neurologist you're pouring over all the tables you find it okay i'll have to pay 262 dollars to see this urologist and you go in there to see the urologist thinking that okay you know sometimes um the our insurance companies will give us um most probably the insurance companies are not going to uh, really entertain us uh seeing um out of network uh, doctor but the doctors can be like okay you know what we could give you a discounted rate but that does not happen all the time so there is balance billing you get to pay that cost the federal government thinks that this NSA act so NSA act is going to it's it is supposed to put an end to all these surprise billings and the federal government thinks that this NSA act will apply to around 10 million out of network surprise medical bills in this year so one thing i'm sure is that these astronomical numbers are beginning to really numb my senses but we still have to deep deep dive into the mental health care and before that i'm beginning to understand that what we have should not be called as health care it is ill health care or sick care or just disease management we lose our health and then our healthcare folks manage our diseases but not the person but it is also necessary for us to understand at any point so we're all focused on about us what's going on about us in terms of healthcare and how much we have to pay and all that but in all this we still have to understand one major point that the high healthcare costs occurs disproportionately and it mainly affects three subgroups so i'm looking i'm sitting here and i'm worrying about my healthcare costs three different subgroups are getting it even worse they are the uninsured adults 
black and Hispanic adults and those who are poor with low income. Keep that in mind always. Mental health care. Do you think US spends the most on mental health care as a portion of the GDP as compared to other um, countries? Absolutely not. Which country then spends most on mental health? Denmark does. It spends about 5.4% of the country's GDP. Finland, Netherlands, Belgium, Norway spend at least 5% of their GDP or higher. The Commonwealth Fund reported that the United States has one of the highest mental health disease burdens in the, among the high-income countries. One in four U.S. adults have a mental health diagnosis, which can be either anxiety, depression, or some acute emotional distress. American adults are also very willing to seek professional help as compared to other countries, particularly for emotional distress. But they're also most likely to report that they do not get access or they can't afford such care. Emotional distress can happen due to some sort of a need, like it can be either social need or economic need, and it happens to all the people across the world. Nearly half of U.S. adults who experience this emotional distress have reported that they have this emotional distress due to these kind of social and economic worries. Now, this percentage is the highest in the world. Simply put, United States has become one of the worst mental health related outcomes, including we have the highest suicide rate and the second highest drug-related death rate. America also has another problem, a relatively low supply of mental health workers, particularly psychologists and psychiatrists. Only one-third of U.S. primary care practices have mental health care professionals on their team. In comparison, in Netherlands and Sweden, 90% of primary care practices have mental health care professionals on their team. After the start of the pandemic, Americans experienced anxiety and worry and depression rates are up by an additional 11%. Now the total prevalence of these diseases are at 42%. U.S. also spends less on mental health care right around uh, $225 billion. But again, it's a broken system. Depression alone annually costs around $211 billion. And that includes loss in productivity as well as medical care. In all, U.S. spends only 5% of the total health care on specifically on mental health. And the mental health care, you know, as compared to other countries like Denmark, which is above 5%, we spend 1.05% of the GDP. There are other problems too, deep inequalities in accessing, 
affordable mental health care also occurs and mainly that occurs along the socioeconomic lines. If you're like me, you'll be thinking, hmm, what is the biggest mental health problem facing United States? And I can tell you what it is. It's about 10 million Americans living with a serious mental health disorder or what, you know, it's fancy science name of SMD, serious mental health disorder. That's about 3% of the U.S. population. The most common of the serious mental health disorders are anxiety disorders, can be major depression and bipolar disorder. The problem gets worse. 15% of those with mental illnesses are also uninsured. We will come back to this topic and do another deep dive on the various aspects of mental health care and why are we missing these marks and how certain other technologically oriented companies are filling in those gaps in in very unique ways. Let's look at some actual data. This is claims data. So I pulled my husband's claims data from um, January 1st, 2021 to September 30th, 2021. So that's a period of nine months. Now during this time, he didn't need healthcare services, but there were no emergency room visits or urgent care visits or hospitalizations. And there were no ambulatory surgical procedures either. So every claim was some sort of an outpatient visit. So in those nine months, and by the way, I do have permission to use this data and to, um, to talk about um, our claims. In those, in those nine months, the claims submitted by the providers, the total claims submitted by those providers were, came up to around $38,922.28. That is around $4,324 every month. Now, skip over and we got to look at what was paid to them by the insurance company. So the doctors treat us, they submit a claim to the insurance company, and the insurance company should be reimbursing them. That's how it goes. So they asked for $38,922.28 altogether during those nine months. And what they got from the insurance companies was only $14,430.24. That was 37% of the total claim submitted. Just 37%. Our total out-of-pocket care was also calculated for the entire nine months. That was 1,579, which came up to around 4% of the claims submitted. So the providers and hospitals are okay when they get only like, 37% of what they asked the insurance companies to give them. Now that was a big surprise to me. How that 
you know, the, the math was just not adding there, right? That together, 37% plus what we are paying, 4%, that really does not total to that $38,922. So, of course, we have to investigate it to better understand this. So, took each of these claims one by one and looked at them. What these claims were submitted for. There were some claims like $75 for a dermatology visit, and that was paid 100%. Asked for $75, they got $75. But then there were some claims for tests. There were MRIs or CD scans, and these costs in, in, in the market, it's supposed to cost a maximum of $1,600 for one of these, one of them, one MRI, one CT scan. Now, in the bill or in this uh, claims um, data, when the doctor ordered these, my husband decided, okay, where should I go? The doctor said, okay, you need to go to Hospital X to get this MRI. And he was very good about it. He walked across, went to the hospital, exactly where the doctor ordered it uh, for him, and he did the scan. Now, the claims that the doctor will submit, or in this case, the radiologist would submit, came up to $9,725. We say that again. It was $9,725 for one MRI. Now, the insurance company decided they're going to pay only 10% of it, which came up to around $942. And we paid $104, which, is, which, is, was, about, well, sorry, which was about 1%. And that was it. The healthcare provider was happy. They got only 10% of what they asked for. And I'm, I'm still not understanding the math here. That does not add up to 9,275. See, $942.45 $9 plus $104 does not add up to $9,275. These details, now that I'm looking at it, for this podcast, really. <laughs> it's confusing. But at that point in time, when I did get the claims, you know, the billing, both the bills, as well as the uh, explanation of benefits, those that's the paperwork which comes from our insurance company. What do we do usually? We're not vigilant about it. We don't compare our bill with the explanation of benefits. I did not know we were supposed to even do that. I have always taken that, I'll go directly to, uh, to a shredding place, shred it. That's it. And I'll walk away. Not once did I actually go through these explanation of benefits. This is a very critical document. And I found that I was just tossing it without even taking a second look. Lesson learned. Get a bill from the hospital, keep it with you. 
and then wait for the explanation of benefits or what they call as EOB and use your bill to compare to the explanation of benefits. They should match. A lot of times they may not. So follow the money, figure this out, why, ask questions on why this is happening. So if a hospital gets back only 10% and they are happy about it, they, they have no complaints. They did not ask for more. What does that really tell you? Did they submit the claims which were not really appropriate? Or why were they, why did they have to overcharge? Imagine if the hospital gives you a bill for $110,000 for your surgery. So that's, let's say, you're gonna go get a surgery and it costs you $110,000. So you get the bill, you find, you know, you ask questions, you find, okay, that's not, that's how it's gonna cost me. And then you look at your plan and you're like, ah, oh, I have 10% copay, which means I have to pay around $11,000 right? That's my out-of-pocket cost for this. So once, so we're supposed to pay the out-of-pocket costs, but do we see what happens between the hospital and the insurance payer? Do we know? It could, we, we could technically know that, but keep your bill in your hand. And so once you pay it, the hospital goes in and negotiates with the insurance companies and the hospital can get reimbursed 70,000, not 100,000, right? We are, pay, we are paying the $11,000 and the hospital does not get the remaining, but they negotiated and they get only 70,000 70, and that's, they are happy. But that does not mean that the hospital takes that bill and reduces it to, you know, like 70,000 or 80,000 so that the 10% of that 80,000 is only 8,000 for you, 8,000 for a patient. So the patient essentially would be paying less out of pocket if, if the hospitals were pricing their surgery right, their procedures were priced right. But that was not the case. So we end up paying a lot more, 11,000 versus the 8,000 we should have paid. Right. So a big bill or claim submitted by the hospital or provider manages to take the most, just siphons the most money from you and then they back channel it with the insurance company. There are three parties in play here, right? So there's a provider, which is your healthcare, your doctors, your hospitals and all of them. Then there's the company, insurance company, and of course the patient. The only party who's vulnerable here is the patient. And the only party who is being taken advantage of is also the patient. The other two parties win. Our ill health, my ill health, and your ill health makes the other two rich. Sicker you are, there is more money to be made. The one lesson I learned during this study is to be vigilant. Be vigilant when it comes to healthcare. We have to keep in mind that for us as patients, healthcare is not commerce, it's a life. 
but it is commerce for a hospital and the insurance companies. It is absolutely necessary to keep that in mind and remind ourselves frequently. I am going in for my health without knowing how much my treatment will cost me. I will have to put my health in another person's hands. But I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to remain vigilant and I'm going to ask questions and fully understand what is happening at every step. With this, we come to the end of episode three. But we're returning for episode four, where we will be speaking with a sexologist to get the answers for the questions we have about sex. Thank you so much for listening to The Patient Angle. Please send in your voice and text comments to thepatientangle at gmail.com. The email again is thepatientangle at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you. I want to hear from you so I can find the answers for you. Please support us and follow us on Spotify or from anywhere you get your get to listen to your podcasts. Once again, thanks for listening. Have a great, wonderful 2022. This is The Patient Angle.